The theme for the evening talk is uh, Outer uh, Inner Pilgrimage. Actually, just before coming in here, um, Shada, Mike and, and I were uh, talking a little bit about a break in the form, and uh, they tell me, with the teachers who are teaching together in the collective, there's a tendency for all the teachers to be up front while the teacher of the evening is speaking. So they were going to uh, emigrate to the chairs, they said, before coming in here, but it uh, seems like the emigration has already taken place and the chairs are well, well in use. When very understandably, on a day when, uh, as some of you reported in the small groups, that uh, meditation doesn't seem to be all bliss and harmony on the first day, and the legs are a little tired, and the back is a little tired. There's a certain attractive quality about chairs at 7.30 in the evening. Oh. So if others might need the chairs at some time, just, um, sure, I, IMS will uh, have some somewhere. So an outer and inner uh, pilgrimage. Perhaps for most of us it seems rather a long time uh, ago since... Uh, the new millennium started and all the huge amount of fuss that uh, went on uh, about it. And it's like one of the many examples in life, of course, where we, our minds, our hearts can take uh, an enormous interest in a number, like we might do with our birthdays and other things. And a tremendous build-up of attention around a number and people get together around a number and it builds up into a, a huge event. It doesn't have anything relate, any relationship to life, of course. It's a, in terms of what's out there in the world of existence, but it's a number and the mind moves around it. And in certain things, numbers can be worth acknowledging and celebrating. There were a number uh, of us who were in Budgaya at the beginning of the new millennium. And we went into the grounds of the, uh, where the Bodhi tree is. And not only were there uh, uh, people from the Indian community and the Western uh, community, but from the Asian community as well, Thais and Tibetans and Burmese and Sri Lankans. And we sat for an hour from 11.30 till uh, 12.30. And it was an extraordinary peaceful uh, situation. And of course, for many millions and millions of people uh, in this world, the millennium was very much a non-event of any, any interest. But the silence and the stillness in the grounds of the monastery was quite uh, lovely. And just after uh, mid midnight, uncharacteristically, an extraordinary mist descended into in and, around, uh, the, in and around the temple and, and the tree. And it just kind of hovered, right, just a few minutes after uh, uh, midnight and enveloped everybody. And it gave a kind of quiet, mystical feeling and, and the atmosphere was very special and, and, and sacred and it seemed a very sweet and loving entry into this uh, new millennium, as we might call it. And afterwards, and from that uh, time, if I may say for myself, in various ways, 
this uh, new millennium has also been a small religious pilgrimage. So this is the, the outer. And from uh, Budgaya, uh, was in uh, Varanasi, a number of you have uh, been to uh, India and know some of these places uh, very well. And there with uh, uh, Nina and I, and we walked along the ghats uh, there, that's the steps which lead down to the river Ganga, the Ganges. And at one end of the Ghats is the burning Ghats. That's where those who have uh, died are, are cremated, and cremated quite openly. And piles of wood are, are put together, and the corpse is placed on the wood. Then the Brahmin priest comes, and he circumnavigates, and goes around there and uh, with the sacred ashes and water and uh, mantras, does the final puja. Or the person. And when uh, Nina and I were, were there, the person who was being uh, uh, cremated by the river was a young woman. She was perhaps 20 years of age, and her face was quite visible. She was dressed in the uh, sari with just the, the cloth um, uh, over on the top of her. And of course, friends and family, and possibly brothers and sisters, maybe husband, uh, were there. And it's kind of struck one in this very sacred city uh, of uh, India that since she would have died within the previous 24 uh, hours, this was a person who was living the day before, who, from whatever occurrences may have occurred, suddenly the life is gone. And there are no visible, noticeable signs, but we just stood and, and respectfully watch the, the process uh, take, taking place. And who knows what the cause of death? Was it illness? Was it a, uh, an accident? Was it as it can be in India and elsewhere, of course, through childbirth or whatever? But the, the, the grief and the sorrow of the, of the family uh, there and just one person's life there may have been happy and laughing and joking the previous day and then the life is gone. And sometimes in our everyday world, in our everyday existence, we, how easily we can get so caught up in who we are and what we're doing that we can lose, you know, lose sight of life, its challenge and its difficulties, and the wonder and the mystery and the inexplicable nature of it all. And even all of that, including the difficulties of death as well, has a kind of air and quality to it, which you and I can never comprehend with our everyday mind or with our educated mind or whatever. And I think we need to create and generate time and spaces in our life, such as here at IMS and elsewhere, just to reflect and give a little bit more attention to what living is, about being in this world and making this journey through this existence and maybe giving that a bit more priority in our life and not so much on goals and achievements and our career and becoming somebody special and important. Those are very small incidentals of life. There are much deeper things of life which count, which we need to really attend to. And from there, we were in Saranath. And like Budgaya, Saranath is a place, a great pilgrimage place for Buddhists, uh, around the world. It's the place where the Buddha gave his first teachings. And, and again, there's a whole body of teachings which uh, take place. It's a lovely village and we have a program there every February and 
through the month of February, men and women from different parts of the world, at least 20 nationalities, and some of you who are here have been there, come and we just spend uh, the period of time together, spiritual explorations and meditations. And the heart of the teaching that took place there, and I think again a fundamental message in the contemporary world as much as two and a half thousand years ago, is the Buddha said how important it is to genuinely give attention to the middle way. And he said that how quickly in life we fall into extremes. And one extreme in contemporary language, and, and the same language in fact that the Buddha used, is I suppose one might call it self-infatuation, or self-obsession, or self-preoccupation. And it's the kind of mind which keeps thinking again and again in terms of what's in it for me. What am I going to get? The self in its supremacy, in its wanting mode, and consistently and insisting on satisfaction for the self. And then the way of life becomes a continual and sustained effort to get the satisfaction for the self, with all the tension, the frustration, the disappointments uh, that go along with it. And the other extreme position, of course, is self-rejection and how easily the mind itself keeps turning in its way on itself and that reflecting, as one person was pointing out in the small group today, uh, in, in terms of judging, putting oneself, putting oneself down, uh, being negative towards oneself, always seeing what's wrong with oneself, never feeling satisfied with oneself, ha having a, a pattern and a tendency in life to heap self-blame, to, uh, to keep indulging in feelings of lack of self-worth or whatever. And these two extremes in life torment human existence. One is the self, which is after wanting, 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 sometimes as a compensating for hating, hating, hating of oneself. And can one actually find between those extremes the middle way? Are we really interested in the middle way? What would that show itself? How would that actually manifest in our life? And so, just in the flow of the days here, as the person uh, said, and others will say in various ways every day, sometimes one can look around the room and one has hardly been here a few hours and one has adopts the view, oh, everybody else seems to be so much more spiritual than I. Not that any of us ever found out what the word spiritual means. Or uh, so others seem to be so much more focused, concentrated, calm, steady, clear, free, enlightenment, happy, content than I. Believe me, if everybody was experiencing that in the room, what on earth are you doing here? So sometimes the mind takes the view, everybody else but me. And, but that view is another tormentor of one's existence. It leads men and women on this earth who are imprisoned to comparing, to cons constantly being running after things in some vain and vague hope of catching up with everybody else, as being as good as everybody else, as achieving as much as everybody else, as being uh, as worthy as everybody else. 
And so this wretched competitive system that we uh, uh, live under and the pressures that go along with it keeps breeding dissatisfaction. And so from just a small thing in our life, what is the middle way? How could it be a middle way if one's comparing oneself with others and putting others down and boosting oneself up? Where is the wisdom in that? Or where is the wisdom in putting oneself down and boosting others up? Can we, in our life, find a, a middle way? And then the, the Buddha, in Saranath, he, ex, he explicitly states what the middle way is. And he said, can we really give care and attention in life to a path in life which really attends to and addresses every area of our existence. Therefore, right understanding and right action and right speech and right livelihood, etc. Can we make that the priority? And the two of those features at the end of those eightfold path is right mindfulness or right awareness and right samadhi, means right, right meditative concentration. Those two things which we put a lot of attention in these days to help support and help us work on everything else. And therefore, if you and I are bringing in greater awareness into our life, a feature of that will be we will notice with, uh, with clarity and with speed as well situations when we're self is caught up in boosting others up or putting them down, or boosting ourselves up, or putting ourselves down. That awareness and clarity uh, about the hopelessness of living like that hopefully will come in with enough authority to dispel this uh, egotism that haunts our existence and makes lives terrible. That's what we speak about the middle way. So a further feature of the pilgrimage was spending time in, uh, in Saranath, and the abbots of the monasteries there have been extraordinarily kind and generous to some, you know, the group of us who come, whatever it might be, 80 to 130-odd people, uh, Westerners who usually haven't got a clue about anything in terms of monastic etiquette or whatever, and are willing to tolerate the uh, eccentricities of the uh, uh, West Westerners, like one of one woman who decided that she needed to go out of the monastery at, uh, I can't remember what time it was, 10pm in the evening for some reason, and the gates in the monastery are locked, and, and then the woman demanded to go out, and the abbot explained to her that uh, for her own care and safety, though it's extremely safe in Burundi, one should stay in the monastery after 10 or 10.30 in the evening uh, there, and then she said, uh, um, I'm not going to be imprisoned in this patriarchal system, etc. I'm an independent, liberated woman. I know my rights, uh, etc. And started shouting at this Ajahn Vichy and the abbot, who's as sweet and as kind, as a gentle a soul as one could meet on this earth. Etc., etc. So sometimes the Westerners you know, really are uh, clueless beyond belief. And nevertheless, despite all of that, uh, in Saranath and in the, uh, in the monasteries, there's still the kindness and the generosity there to let the Westerners come and practice you know, and all the resources and facilities that we need um, in that, vill in that uh, village. 
And then from there, in continuing uh, there, we were in um, sort of, uh, time later, three or four months later, a few months later, just recently, in fact, um, in Israel. And in uh, uh, visiting uh, uh, is Israel, the, uh, the time there, of course, when um, Mr. Barak and Mr. Arafat were uh, talking to uh, each other. I'm not quite sure if they were listening to each other, but at least they were talking to each other and trying to resolve a very long-standing uh, situation there. And I must say, um, in um, visiting uh, Israel, one of the things which I like about Israel uh, uh, very, very much, that one doesn't have to be so politically correct as here in the U.S. And what I mean by that, there's a certain kind of dynamic of um, straightforwardness, which is, I find, very uh, 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 healthy. Israelis have a, a good sense for that. And, in, and that can sometimes reflects in the, in the actual retreats themselves on the edge of the, uh, of the uh, Negev Desert. So to give you a small example, because I know the Jewish Jewish community in the uh, United States is uh, uh, strong and it's mar mar marvelous, one of the questions which often arises um, um, here and elsewhere is in terms of areas of choice. You have the first day of the retreat together. And we're always being told that we have choices. We are always told this. We always have, you have a choice, and that's your choice. So today, we had a choice, and apparently we all made it. We chose to observe the breath. So this was the choice that was made for today. <laughs> and how successful was your choice? Did the mind say, oh yes, that's what I do today. I come in here six, seven, eight times a day for sitting meditation, and I'm choosing to be with the breath. And the mind says, oh yes, right, of course. Wouldn't dream of doing anything else. <laughs> and the whole state of mind which has been arising through the day is basically making a complete mockery of the choice. Now surely that ought to be telling us a little bit about the larger scale of life and the degree of capacity of choice. Because we made the choice and the mind says, I couldn't care less about your choice. I, I, I want, to, want, want to think about my childhood. Um, <laughs> so, views on choice and um, expressions of, 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 of choice is, seems to be that if there isn't other factors there, in terms of development of mind and awarenesses and inner contentment and happiness and numerous other conditions, the, the choices are simply blown away. So, given the lovely atmosphere which I... There's only two places, and don't take this personally, there's only two places in the world which I am packed to travel to, and I've been in four continents this year, before, days before I go. One is India and the other is Israel. Everywhere else, kind of familiar, and I just pack the night before and go. But now I've got energy. So, when I, in the retreat in uh, Israel, one young man in his mid-twenties came for the, up for the inquiry. And he said, I want to talk about choice. I'm having difficulty in making a choice, etc. So we had some dialogue on choice. And, um, and then he thought it was completed. So 
So then I uh, 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 said, said to him, what does it feel like to be one of the chosen people? <laughs> and he went, huh? <laughs> and then he, the uh, energy went up a little bit in the, in the room. Uh, <laughs> you know, about however, 70, 80 of us uh, in there. And he then he said, oh, my parents, he said. He handled it very, very well. It was a great credit to him. And he said, oh, my parents are rather secular and they don't bother with any, any of this. So then I said to him, what do, you, what do you think about it, though? Because this is used quite regularly. It's quite regularly used in the Hebrew tradition. So what do you think about it? Would you, th would you see it as having some genuine value to it or as a one long historical ego trip? And uh, so the attention went up a little bit more energy in the whole, 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 whole here. And to his credit, I, he uh, handled it extremely well, extremely uh, steady uh, with it. And uh, just uh, responded to the sense of the value it can be in, in religious and cultural identity. Could give a lot of great mutual support. But there is a danger in it, of course, of ego and I, me, and my, and us, and them. And them going on, and that can create problems within the community and within communities of others, etc., etc. So sometimes, in looking uh, into uh, areas and, and, and in our life, another important feature of Dharma teachings is: Are we clinging to anything? Not a problem of having a religion. Not a problem of loving a culture, feeling associated with a, a culture, such a wonderful. Uh, uh, culture, the Jewish tradition or other traditions, but are we clinging? Are we possessive and identified with? Are we using it for ego purposes and therefore discriminating against? It's not the connection with, it's not the association with, that is not a problem in human existence and respect for our communities, cultures and countries, but is that what else goes along with it? That's what we want to look at. That's what we want to give care and attention to while, while we are here. And from there, we travelled down deep into the Sinai Desert. And uh, it was hot. Some of you may have been into the, into the Sinai. It was hot. It, was, it hasn't rained since October 1997. I mean, it's a contrast for England when we say, gosh, it hasn't rained for eight hours. And the temperature in centigrade, which is European views, was in the 40s, here, 110, 120, 125. And we got to Mount uh, to Sinai, where Moses was uh, said, said to have climbed, and where he saw the, uh, the burning bush. God was in the burning bush. So it was so unbelievably hot, it's July. Some of you may have done this. If you haven't made any kind of pilgrimage, please do it. And we went up at four o'clock in the afternoon and climbed Mount uh, uh, Sinai behind the monastery of St. Catherine. Took a three-hour uh, walk up there to Sinai. It's breathtaking. No wonder the, the saints and the sages and the prophets love the desert so much. No wonder. It's awesomely silent, awesomely still. And the night sky is breathtaking. So, just, uh, just slept out under the stars on the top of the mountain. Uh, there people walking up, making their pilgrimage uh, uh, during, uh, during the night. And one just sees, if one looks into these old beautiful texts, 
tremendous profound truths which the, the Buddha himself could have uttered. What's the profound significance? The non-dual, D-U-A-L. For those of you, quite a lot of you here, a lot of exposure to the Dharma of life. What's the non-dual understanding? God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, and the burning bush couldn't go out. What's the non-dual when it says in Genesis, do not bite on knowledge of the tree of good and evil? Wonderful, beautiful Dharma teachings in these texts. So sometimes in all the historical, etc., etc., very profound teachings take place. And some people in Dharma practice and teachings, in looking into that, have the opportunity to look into situations here. To be silent, to be still, to be simple, to be austere, to be in the the desert of one's own existence, to see what, may, what, may, what we may respond to and connect with in that, to see well, what is the middle way in all of this, to be aware in our day what the holding and the cling, clinging that may, that may take, that take place. And so sometimes we see, my goodness, there's outer pilgrimage taking place, in this case an inter-religious pilgrimage, and also there's an inner pilgrimage that can take place as well, and to go very, very deep inwardly, and to really make a journey inwardly, and to really see what that kind of journey is all about. And therefore we need the silence and the support and the love and the kindness of each other. And then from there we, we're in, uh, um, in, in, in Jerusalem, and uh, visiting the main uh, synagogue there, of course, there's uh, areas too of the, the Muslim community and the Jewish community and the Via Dolorosa from the Garden of Gethsemane. And sometimes in just walking in these old places there and just having some contact and exposure to this, it kind of makes one realize and uh, appreciate to hear the, the depth of the human journey and what men and women have passed through and keep exploring through, through their spiritual awarenesses and, and insights. And one man, he took us right in, into a small room and then down some winding stairs going back hundreds of years, old stone, some of you may know, cobbled stairs, right, in, right into the earth itself, into these small rooms where pe people had lived. And goodness, you know, the whole human experience going on. To the place, I was in tears when we went to a place where it was said that when the, the Romans condemned Jesus to death, and at first they, they tortured him, and then crowned him with the, with, with the thorns, and, and the incredible suffering that that man you know, uh, uh, under, underwent through essentially being misunderstood. Essentially being misunderstood. And there's this rabbi from Nazareth having to make this terrible, lonely journey to the crucifixion. And, and, and all that one went through, just through, through being misunderstood. Nothing else. And all the divisions, one community called Christians saying he's the Messiah, and another community called Jews saying he isn't, and a long history of confusion. I said in the retreats there, I said, please understand, in coming to Israel, you've got three religions already. I've had enough trouble with three religions for the last two 2003. I said, the last thing you want is a fourth called Buddhism. 
Emil, thank you, Christopher. <laughs> so again, our practice pays respect and acknowledges the diversity and the wonder of uh, religious life, of the deep things which are still available and accessible to it. But we still have to make the journey. We still have to look for something deep and profound, not just temporarily in life, but make it something which is genuinely ongoing in our existence. And we need each other for all, all of that. And some will say, as I do, I'm not a, I don't consider myself a Buddhist, I don't call myself uh, a Buddhist or anything like that, that the labels, the, these are small external factors, it's something else about our relationship to existence. And what we're trying to do here in the very short period of time that we have here, to, here together to find some sense of connection and presence. To see what that feels like, what that really, really means in just the ordinary thing of sitting and walking and standing and eating and being on this earth, in which we're willing, and this is something perhaps more significant than what we realize, that we are willing, temporarily as it might be, but it might be just enough to put aside most of our identity that's what we're doing here. And that's what the silence is reminding everybody of. You and I don't get much opportunity to put out our identity here. How many, who knows, how many people can say, know what the person next to you is doing with their life? Never seen them before, the probability is you won't hear anything, or very, very uh, uh, little, and you don't know if they're married, if they're heterosexual or gay, if they're secularists or religious, if they're whatever, wealthy or poor, employed or unemployed, either a therapist or not a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> because in places like this, you're always one or the other. <laughs> one just doesn't know. One has no idea of the identity of everybody who is, who is here. We've put aside all the identity. We've put aside all those uh, years of education. Put aside all that knowledge that we've accumulated, which has a, a usefulness. I can't think what it is, but it has a, use, a usefulness in certain areas of one's uh, life, and a lot of it is just less we know, uh, etc. But there's a willingness to put aside all of that. There is a willingness not to promote one's career or one's study or one's um, identity through all the roles that we have. So put it all aside. It counts the little. We're not interested in wanting to indulge in these various roles that we have in our everyday life, we actually think, I don't want to be thinking about this. I don't want to be, my mind to be going on about this role I have and this, what I do and what I can do and will do and won't do, etc. So this putting everything aside has a real purpose to it. To forget the self, to realize something else. The self is the role, the self is the appearances, the self is the accumulated history, the self is all the normal sense of personality, all 
helpful, useful, and sometimes not helpful, not useful, and convention. What is it to say, in the silence, it doesn't matter? I might draw an, a conclusion or two about someone who passes me in the hallway and I give them a little smile and, and they look at me as though I was Saddam Hussein, but that might be just a temporary reaction. It may not say too much about the person, simply because she or he feels a bit cold in the moment, looks a bit cold in the moment, or looks a bit speedy in the moment, or a bit bored in the moment. It's a momentary arising out of the personality, just as it is with us. What's behind it? That's what counts. That's what matters. And maybe the pilgrimage to what's behind it may, with us, be very beneficial for our inner life, a heart life, a mental life, a concentrated life, a service life, for uh, love and care life, for living wisely life. But it's quite something beautiful, and, and I would say in this world, rather rare for men and women to come together and quite purposefully and intentionally put aside all the personality stuff to allow ourselves to be in the silence of things as much as possible. To be, to use a lovely word of the Buddha, he says to be akinchana is a, I'm not very good with Pali spellings but last time I spelt it it was A-K-I-N-C I-N-A, that's right too. Akinchana. Akinchana means something, somebody. Akinchana, not something, not somebody. Oh, atta. Somebody, self, me, I, this is who I am, blah, 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 blah. Anatta, not self, not me, not I, etc., etc. Meaning, in other words, with, uh, in this case, akinchana. Not being somebody, not being somebody special, not being important, not, not, not blowing one's own trumpet, or anatta, not concerned with ego, not concerned with I, me, my, I, me, my, and all that goes along uh, with it. So in other words, that willingness, not easy to do, obviously, to allow oneself to put that aside, a great support for that, the container for that, is the silence. I'm here and I'm I'm here and my success in the world doesn't matter. I'm here and my relationship to my shares doesn't matter. I'm here and my relationship to my empty bank account doesn't matter. Whatever it might be, that one's got some strange interest in. And the willingness just to say, never mind. That will be attended to in a few days' time, right now, Akinchana, not being something, not being important. Could that receptivity be a receptivity to something of a different order? Something quite different. There's a strength of men and women from all those places of uh, pilgrimage that I referred to and many others of strong spiritual traditions, 
of spontaneous realizations which says and has said in an unbroken line again and again yes there is something much more profound than just dealing with personality issues of oneself and others and the silence is a contribution to that something profound and beautiful which men and women have loved and cherished and spoken of and used words for and not used words for over a long period of time I do believe that truly is worthwhile having trust and confidence in but these men and women knew what they experienced knew what they were talking about and had uh, an unshakable confidence in it I think we should listen to that None, it's a single voice, this one, I'm telling you. So our meditations, despite our knee pains and our wandering mind and, and difficulty be, to be attentive uh, with the breathing, all the adjustments that are going on for everybody in the first day here, it's a little bit jumping in at the deep end of meditation, I agree that to make the day from uh, 6 uh, a.m. through to 9.30 in the evening or a bit longer if uh, uh, you so wish is a challenge and in that for the number of you who are here for the first time and in a new environment here to actually in the, the working uh, with all, all, all of this just a few small things to bear in mind and one of those is, of course, the relationship to the whole day. But there's great teachings and, and message in speaking that the here and now is the doorway to knowing liberation. Here and now is the doorway to knowing liberation. Or as Jesus said in his own uh, uh, beautiful and uh, profound way, be ever watchful the kingdom of God is at hand these statements are not to be taken lightly, not to be forgotten, there's something profound about the here and now, both in terms of its immediacy of contact with sights and sounds, smells, taste and touch, because our existence relates around that, if we're not clear about it, it's going to make life a hard journey for us but also more and the deeper the intimacy with the here and now. To feel the, the tangible quality of, of it. It's actually to go deeper than just the appearance of seeing and listening and smelling and tasting and touching and feeling and thinking. And so at the relative, we take a real interest in when we see, what do we do with what we see? When we hear, what do we do with what we hear? When we smell, what do we do with that? When we taste, what does the inner life do with that? When we touch, when we experience out of the body, what do we make of that? What do we do with it? And therefore, there's a strong message and teaching or practice of dealing with the relative truth of things because our life is involved in seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. If we know this well, we'll live wisely and there'll be contentment. If we don't understand it, we'll suffer. It's a hard message, 
but it's an honest one. And there's that which embraces all of that, accommodates it all easily, which is freeing and truly illuminating for us. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings see into the here and now. May all beings understand the nature of things. So let's have uh, two or three minutes of shared uh, silence together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.